I have an analogy. I see the private equity firms like the old time doctors in the 1800s. Remember, they used to bleed patients and the patient either got really weak or died. And that's what they do. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Which side are you on? Which side are you on in private equity and healthcare? I don't know. That's why I keep having guests on either side of the position on the show. Today, I have an author for you. I brought an author named Dr. Laura Katz Olson. She is a professor of political science at Lehigh University. She's been there since 1974, and she has a book called Ethically Challenge, Private Equity Storms U.S. Healthcare. And she, even at the end of the show, she mentions, you know, she says, sounds like you're not sure. Well, you probably heard me say that on the show of what is the categorical net benefit of outside money in our field, buying practices. And I have people from different perspectives on the show. I don't know, guys. Like I told you, I'm a communications major, bachelor graduate from Oswego State in upstate New York. I'm not the scientist, but I do appreciate scientific thinking. And what I'm still lacking, what I still haven't gotten from other side is really good data to help me say what I think is categorically better or categorically worse. One, I don't even totally know which metric that I would judge on. Would it be patient satisfaction? Would it be clinical success rates? Even if it were, like, how many other variables taint that? But I suspect you'd probably have three to six key performance indicators, right? Because if you just had one, you can always maximize one outcome and it could be at the detriment of other things. So you'd probably want various KPIs to balance each other out to say, okay, is this, is this having a, a net benefit or a net negative? And I haven't heard that yet. So I asked a little bit for it in the interview. It may be in the book and I still haven't gotten my copy yet. So I hope to to be able to to dig more in. But I haven't totally heard it from the the network groups either. I just hear a bunch of case studies on either side. And I see case studies on either side ha- manifesting themselves in real life of this is an example where we've improved efficiency and raised the standard of care. This is an example where we're reducing costs and reduced the the standard of care. And so I would love to hear about how we would really measure this if we're seeking the truth. I'm seeking the truth, guys. I own a privately held business development and creative firm. That's my normal pay grade. And I'm punching up to give you more education and and information as it relates to building your businesses, starting your careers, advancing in your careers. And I would love your thoughts on how we would pursue private equity, uh, and venture capital, who are both very different, 
impact in healthcare, specifically the fertility field. But today I let Dr. Olson give her perspective. She wrote a book about it. She feels very strongly about it. And she does have some really good examples to include in her argument. So you let me know. Which side do you fall on this? But in the meantime, enjoy today's Inside Reproductive Health with Dr. Laura Katz Olson. Dr. Olson, Laura, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. My pleasure to be here. You are coming from an area that is a little bit broader than just reproductive health, just assisted reproductive technology. You've recently written a book about private equity in healthcare, and it's called Ethically Challenged. So there might be an angle we're, we're pursuing in today's convo. It's, it's called Ethically Challenged, Private Equity Storms, U.S. Healthcare. Why this book, Laura? Well, I've been studying actually aging and healthcare now for about 50 years. And private equity just kept cropping up uh, when I was looking at nursing homes, home health care. But I couldn't find anything about it. And then when I was looking at comparisons between, let's say, uh, home health care that's commercially owned and those that are nonprofit, they never differentiate the commercially owned from regular commercial to private equity. And I found that very strange. Uh, so I started uh, looking into it. I went to uh, a private equity, uh, and, and one of the reasons I've discovered is because of the secrecy. The private equity firms have what they call a penchant for secrecy. I bought the private equity data from PitchBook, which cost, uh, I had a razor from my university, but it cost $22,000 a year. And I went to a couple of private equity conferences, one of the incidences that I discovered, which was really uh, kind of interesting, is there were about 350 people at this conference, one of them. And at every session, they reminded us that everything that went on there was confidential. And of course, as my father once taught me when I was a young girl, and more than one people, one person knows about something, it's not confidential. So the secrecy thing really got to me and got me really more and more curious. And I dug deeper and deeper into how it affected uh, healthcare, and eventually decided this is a story that has to be told. When did you start noticing it? You said you started noticing it in senior care and in other areas of medicine. Uh, more or less, what ballpark of years did you start seeing this trend happen? I started noticing it in the late 1990s with nursing homes, and then it kept cropping up later on, I would say, oh, about 2010, 2015. Um, a lot of the niches, especially fertility, didn't really take, take off until about 2015. So the earliest ones that I noticed were the nursing homes, and then more and more other niches, it started coming up. Okay. Do you have any idea why that 2015 mark is, is, happens to be that? Because we've noticed that in fertility, that it was about 2015. It wasn't to say that there was no one before 2015, but really that's when you started seeing. I think uh, that was the first one, 2015, if I'm correct. Well, so there was Integramed, which had gone public and they did own equity of practices and they were, they were early. I, my listeners will correct me, but I want to say that started in 
the late 90s and then and, oh, and they, okay. they went public at some point in the 2000s, if I'm correct with my timeline, and then were bought off of the market listings by a, a private equity firm called Sigard Holdings. But and that may have been in, in 2012. I'm, I'm making up the year, so I'm hoping one of my at least one of my listeners will send me an email and, and correct me on it. But so ovation, ovation fertility was clearly one of the first in 2015, which was bought by Winrose. And so why that does your book uncover some of this of why halfway through the last decade did we start seeing this in our niche and others? Well, I, th I think there's a number of reasons and each niche really has its own reasons. There's a general number of reasons that a private equity firm would be interested in a sector. And as these reasons come to the forefront, the private equity go into, for example, with fertility, which obviously came later than some of the others, you get the idea that there's more and more children, people are having babies later. So there's more need for fertility treatment. You have about 15 states now mandate that insurance companies include fertility in their package of offerings. More employers are offering the fertility treatment. The Veterans Administration now pays for fertility treatments. And it's big money. One of the things that I found that was interesting is I spoke to a number of owners of fertility, people who sold to well, private equity. They were the most generous with their willingness to talk to me. Fertility treatment owners it was interesting. On or off the record? On the record. And I had the trouble getting anybody else to do that, but they seemed to be the most willing. What did they tell you? Well, let me just give some of the reasons to have rising single parenthood, but even more important that I think is what we should know is that there's a growing amount of dry powder in private equity. What that means is they have more and more money. This year, they made a record in 2021, a record of something like $330 billion, and they have to spend it somewhere. This is just in healthcare, this is private equity, healthcare, who made three? No, no, this is just private equity money to spend. Total. And in to buy, States. yeah, fly out funds, to buy funds. Yeah. And they're running out of Toys R Us places and retail places. And they had to find something in healthcare, but particularly fertility care is very lucrative. One of the people I talked to told me that after they put it together and they were ready to sell, he got orphans from 40 private equity firms. So fertility is a hot market right now. That makes sense to me. And 40 uh, of those 40, it's like how many of them were good, but sure. I bet people are kicking tires all the time. Sometimes often people think, oh, I got a call from such and such a firm. Maybe I got a, a call from KNR or somebody. It's often a, a junior account executive whose job it is just to touch up with everybody and keep your name accurate and in the file, but sure, there are also a number of people that are already within fertility networks that, that are a part of this. So I'm writing down my questions that I have for you, as you say, things that I want to go deeper into one of which was the $300 billion. And you said that that's a, a record that was a record in, in 2021, that private equity firms have to spend. Do we have it? 
I suspect some of that is just because when inflation goes up, stop, people buy stocks and equities. And so high net worth individuals are putting more of their money into behind these private equity firms. But did you, do you have any more of the research of where the money is coming from causing the surge? Well, a huge, huge percentage of the funding for private equity acquisitions comes from pension funds. It comes from state and local pension funds. And they, of course, have been underfunded for decades. And so they see private equity as a way to get a quick book and make up for the uh, pension deficiencies. So most, I don't have the uh, statistics right in front of me, but most of them have increased uh, their private equity investments 2% over the last several years, and they intend to increase it even more. So more and more of their money is not going into the stock market, but is going into private equity, even though private equity is risky. Why do you say that? Well, that's why they have to make outsized profits because the money you put into, first of all, they keep your money for a long period of time. It's not liquid and you can go bankrupt. There's all kinds of risk in private equity that you don't that's, uh, of course, you have risk in the stock market, but that's uh, far less. It's not the S&P 500. That's for you. You're not looking for an average 8% return. Uh, no, you're looking for what they call outsized profits. And they don't really care what they invest in. You know, they can invest in hospice. They can invest in infertility. They can invest in Rota-Ruta. It doesn't matter to them. They're only... Like Willie Sutton, looking for where the money is. You know who Willie Sutton is, right? You're going to have to refresh me. He's a, a, a bank robber. And when they asked uh, Willie Sutton why he robbed banks, he said, Oh, because that's where the that's money is. That's where the money is. <laughs> right, so that's who gets that quote. I should know that. I really like the old, I don't know if it was, is he the Derringer, Bonnie and Clyde era or prior to that? Probably around there. I, I think it's later. Well, I'll have to watch something on him and Babyface Nelson and the others and, and get reacquainted with my old-timey bank robbers. Sounds like a good theme for this show. But so you, <laughs> you're talking to fertility practice owners as you're writing the book. And I'm curious, did anything stand out to you as being distinct within the fertility fertility within the field of fertility? You mentioned that as private equity firms are seeking outsized profits. They could be talking to plumbers. They can be talking to electricians and or dry cleaners or anyone, and they do, but did anything stick out to you as different what's happening in the fertility field than in other areas or even other areas of healthcare? Actually, the private equity playbook is pretty stable. And one of the differences I think with fertility is that it's new. And as with all the new niches, Relatively, the argument that I hear from a lot of physicians and a lot of people in the government and, and so on is it's too early to tell. And if you understand the private equity playbook, and if you understand the history, it's inevitable that certain issues and problems are going to come up. As far as I can tell, you have to be a magician. I don't know how much your listeners know anything about the private equity playbook. Tell us a little bit. Okay. 
the private equity playbook begins with the idea that you have to get outsized profits. And again, you can't just make ordinary profits or people will put their money in the stock market. So you really have to give them a lot more than that. They take these profits and buy a flourishing company, let's say a flourishing fertility company. They don't want a distressed company. They want something, one that's really well established and one that's doing really well. And the reason is because they're buying the company with borrowed money. Today, over 60% of all the money is borrowed. Your private equity firm puts in about 2% in equity and their limited partners, usually the pension funds, put in about 38%. So you have to pay off this debt. And in addition to the debt, you have to pay off enormous fees. For example, they have transaction fees, monitoring fees, management fees, advisory fees, servicing fees. And I just discovered the other day, there's an other that's now becoming very contentious. And that's the uh, food and travel of the uh, PE managers. Then you have the dividend recaps, which is where the private equity firm borrows more money from the company, lays the debt on the company and pockets it. And these are being uh, bought with what they call junk funds, junk rated loans. And this has increased enormously this year. Uh, so they're at 330 billion. So they're pocketing more and more of this money. So what I say, you need enormous cash flow to pay off this debt, to pay these fees, uh, to pay these uh, dividend recaps. And how do you get enormous revenue, increased revenue? And that has to come from the operating costs and shrinking operating costs. And I have an analogy. I see the private equity firms like the old-time doctors in the 1800s. Remember, they used to bleed patients, and the patient either got really weak or died. And that's what they do. And they used to use, in the 1800s, sometimes they used leeches, which I think is an apt analogy for the private equity firm. So the way I see it, you have to be a magician to be able to pay off all those debts, pay off all those fees, and keep quality of care. So that's the general outline of private equity and healthcare. So you mentioned that part of the private equity playbook is buying a flourishing company. And very often when we see a new network come into the field, usually they're they're starting with they're saying, Can I grab at least one big center? A group that has at least 10 docs and is in a, a pretty sizable market and then use that to use them as the flagship of, of the new partnership or network and, and then use that to be able to court other prospective practices to, to sell into my network. So when you say buying a flourish company, is it, is it, is it that, is it just for that, that flagship group or and and then the rest of the portfolio, they're okay with having a distressed asset in here or there if they can get a good deal on it? Or are these all really, really profitable companies that they generally want? Well, in healthcare, in the old days, they used to buy uh, conglomerates and then break them up and sell them because the parts were worth more than the whole. 
Now with healthcare and fertility centers, but other healthcare, what they do is they buy this platform that you were talking about, but then they add on to it because the idea is to get a local, a regional, or even a national monopoly. And then they only have four or five years and they have to sell. They generally don't keep it more than four or five years. And it seems to me that it's been lowering. The average today is four point, I think it's 4.5 years. But many of them are being flipped in two years, so three years. And then the next private equity adds more and makes it bigger. And so what this does is it makes one prices higher for treatments because they're the only game in town once they get a monopoly. And choice for consumers is far less. So it has that effect as well. So why then are we still seeing more new network-backed private equity firms come in as opposed to the current ones being able to consolidate more. So if everybody has, if they're on this timeline of three to five years, we're still seeing, I think, you know, this past, in the past six to 12 months, we saw three new networks come into the, the field and there's already a handful here. Then each of those networks are backed by different private equity firms. And so What's going on with this timeline? Why aren't we starting to see some of the folks that have been around since 2015 or 2017 sell? Well, I guess we have, we, we have somewhat, but why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't these new private equity firms be trying to like buy into these firm, buy into these networks or these networks trying to, why haven't they been successful in gobbling up the clinics that these new networks who, who've only been here a year or less have been able to do? I'm not sure they're not successful. I mean, it takes time. And we're talking about very recently. And so what I see for the future is these new networks increasing in different areas, like immediately jump to a national uh, monopoly. They start in cities. They start in different cities. So you'll have one start. I don't know about about, uh, fertility, but I've seen the history of these. They start in... uh, you know, a certain area in Florida or a certain area in Kansas, and they slowly uh, build themselves up until four or five years and they sell. And then the next one comes in and builds itself up. So we have simultaneous in hospice and home care and all these other niches. You have simultaneous platforms building each other, building up. But they're usually, from what I can remember, they usually start in different areas. Like some are in the south, and they aim for the south. Some are in the northeast, they aim for the northeast. They don't immediately jump in and buy you. Like every year, they might buy three, and they have to integrate them, which is which is a big problem. In, the integration is a big problem. We can probably I'm making a note of that, so we can talk a little bit about that. As far as the timeline goes, are there other categories that are more mature? You said that. Yeah, and in a lot of the niches, this started in 2015 or so. And as you mentioned, relative to other fields of healthcare and other fields of business, fertility is still pretty new. Are there other areas, especially areas of healthcare, that are more mature where we've seen it become a, a two horse race or two companies control everything in other areas of, of healthcare? What, what's that like in more mature sub segments? Same where it's become a two-person race. But certainly you have, one of the early ones is dermatology. 
and you see a number of the dermatology companies that have grown and are still growing themselves off to the next one, they're not, they're not looking to become, they're not like a regular corporation. They're only looking to build their value for four or five years. And then they take their money and they run and they either, you know, put it up for an IPO, but more likely these days they're selling to each other. So it's very different than a corporation. So you don't see two major corporations running against each other. But dentistry has had a long history. Dermatology has had a long history. Ophthalmology has had a relatively long history. And what we see is disaster, both in terms of the patient care, the quality of care, and in terms of bankruptcies. So I want to talk about the bankruptcy part because that's less self-evident if if people are continuing to come in and, and why are they doing that if they're risking being the one holding the hot potato at the end? And I don't know enough about the Integramed deal, but it could have been the case that Sigard was holding the hot potato at that point, that they had something that they were losing money and then whoever bought what those, those properties came into perhaps got, got a better deal on it. But so if it's leading to bankruptcy, what is the incentive for firms to continue doing it? It's not my job to tell you what you should do. Should you sell the private equity? Should you fight as an independent practice owner, an independent fertility business owner forever? That isn't my job. You started a business or a practice for your reasons. My job is to help you get to where you want to go, whether it's selling to them or competing against them. That's what my firm does. We help you pull out competitive advantages and we are not operations consultants. I will never promise you true operational efficiency is a deliverable. That's not us. But all of those areas where sales and marketing overlap with operations to help for a better patient experience, those are the things that we help with. So as you're recruiting staff and you're recruiting doctors and you need the messaging, the brand, and the customer service systems that allow you to be relevant. That's what Fertility Bridge helps with. And the only thing that I really ever try to sell people is that initial diagnostic that we do because it's less than $600. It's $597 to have a consult with us, to have my team do a snapshot and tell you what you need at a high level and go through that with you at your do the patient journey, and then recap everything in a 30-minute follow-up. It's $597 to get you some of these answers that you're thinking about now as you think about the future of your group at a high level. Go to fertilitybridge.com, sign up for the goal diagnostic, and I look forward to doing it with you. But so if it's leading to bankruptcy, what is the incentive for firms to continue doing it? Well, a number of reasons. I'll just give you one example. And then I'll tell you some of the reasons. U.S. Dermatology Partners, which is the third largest dermatology organization in the United States. And I remember when it first started and when I wrote my book, it was still going strong. And then I read in 2020, they defaulted on their loan and went into the third largest dermatology company in the country, went into the hands of its creditors. So 
What I would argue is that it probably overstepped itself in terms of loans. If, if you're very greedy, like Bain Capital was with Toys R Us, they took dividend recap after dividend recap. And each time that they put these uh, millions and millions into their pockets, they got loans. And they can overstep in terms of, well, they get just too many loans. They can buy too many companies too fast, which leads to, as you said, integration problems, but also they couldn't pay the loans. They're just too high. There's all kinds of reasons that at one point they may go into a default and bankruptcy. But one thing I want to make clear is that the private equity companies take out a lot of money before they go bankrupt, and many of them lose nothing. They also don't have a lot at stake because they've only put 2% equity. So it's not like the private equity firms are going bankrupt. It's the company. Well, at the very least, they have to make good for their LPs, don't they? Even if the firm itself put in a minimal amount, they have to, they have to at least cover their LPs, don't they? Well, they don't have to make up for a bankruptcy. But you've got to be, they have about, they have a fund. The LP are really putting money into this fund. Let's say fund number five, they number their funds. And fund number five has 12 to 13 companies. And if one goes bankrupt, it doesn't mean that the LPs are losing money because the other 14 or 12 uh, firms could be just doing fine. I mean, the only real loss is to that one company, its workers, and the communities in which they live. Hence the risk. I've never seen a private equity firm suffer because one of their firms went bankrupt. Do you have any data on the number of healthcare networks funded by private equity that have gone bankrupt between years, whatever, and you know, between years three and 10 or whatever it might be? No, no, I've seen some data. I just don't have it at, at, at hand. Because I'm curious, where I think we're all curious as to, as, to, as to how frequently the Integramed situation happens. And it, there is a intermediary here, which is the network themselves, right? And so you have a, a U.S. Dermatology Partners, I'm assuming was not the private equity firm. They were the operating network. Am I right in that? Or sometimes they call themselves a partnership, but Let's just use the word. No, no, no. The U.S. Dermatology Partners was the conglomerate, or not the conglomerate, the platform and the add-ons. And I, I forget how many locations they had, something like 40, 50 locations across 30 states, something like that. So the private equity firm was the owner of the whole. Sure. But we're... And Within the U.S. Dermatology Partners, were they were each of the practices called something different? Dr. Patel's dermatology here, San Diego dermatology, etc. Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure for U.S. Dermatology, but a number of private equity uh, firms that buy these companies and build them up into huge state or national monopolies use something that one of my personally had interviewed, he calls it stealth branding. What it means is that when you go to the company, it has John's dermatology as opposed to uh, U.S. partners dermatology. So you don't really know that you're going to a private equity firm. 
So some of them do that. Some of them use the name of the U.S. dermatology and others, each practice will have a different name. The reason that I ask is because in our field, we were still one degree removed from the actual private equity firm in many cases, which means that we're then two degrees at that position from of separation from the the limited partners. So, you know, Integramed was the network. It was the conglomerate, as you say. And then behind them was Cigard. And that's the case for most of the networks are doing the purchasing. And so again, sometimes they call them partnerships, but then there's a private equity firm behind that funds that conglomerate, so that that network. And so and, and so I think it's an important distinction for people is that you still might want to find out who's behind those folks. Yeah, but I want I want to make clear that regardless of what the private equity firm says and the mantra to the doctors is that we're going to take the back office burdens off of you. We're going to let you practice medicine. We're going to do regardless. They get firm control. All you have to do is look at the board of directors, talk to people, see what goes on, but they maintain firm control. So the doctors can't just go out and buy anything they want. The fertility places where I talked to the owners who sold them said there's strict control. Even one who was positive about it said, I can't just replace the material anymore. I can't upgrade my equipment. We get rid of uh, nurses and take in less trained people. We do less training, all kinds of things. We get less benefits to our personnel. There was like a list uh, from the three or four people I spoke to of negative things that have happened to patient care and the practice. So it's not like it just goes on as if nothing had happened. I have to squeeze. Well, then, and that brings us to the title of your book, which is, which is ethically challenged. And so let's talk a little bit about this and then maybe I'll steel man their arguments at some points, but it seems like you feel that they're not creating the efficiency they have to squeeze. And so what are the ethical implications that led you to this conclusion that this is a ethically negative thing happening in healthcare? Well, because it's affecting quality of care. If you go through the niches or the subsectors that have a longer history, not fertility or some of the newer ones, but if you go through the, uh, the dentistry, if you go through some of the others, there's a long, long history of uh, private equity taking over companies. And what you see is neglect. You see abuse, you see poor quality care. In 2012, the Senate, the U.S. Senate did a whole uh, investigation on dentistry and they, and they found that they were putting children on uh, what they call papoose boards so they could extract teeth so, and do things faster. They found amazing amounts of abuse. Even today, you get some, not even today, yes, including today. You get places like Aspen Dental, which has a long, long history of abuse, poor treatments. If you look on the any kind of uh, place that shows what clients and staff think of these places, they'll get a one out of five and a whole bunch of really terrible criticism. On and you get places like, uh, what's the other one? I just picked out some. Forefront Dermatology, Great Expectations. 
which in 2019, the Better Business Bureau said that they get an S in terms of quality of care. But you can go through all of them. I picked out some from various niches. Well, that's my concern, Laura, is that people are picking out on either side. And I want to know, how do we measure these things categorically? Because the private equity firms are picking out uh, cases of, look at this that this practice that they couldn't invest because the doctor was overworked and and halfway out the door and didn't have an operations infrastructure, didn't have a business background, whatever it might have been. And I see poor rate ratings from practices sometimes. I also see really poor ratings from independently owned practices that talk about how they have such a good standard of care. I see both a lot. I see, you know, and you're using the camp the example of, of dental. I think I went to Inspire Dental, one of those similar ones. And I liked it. I I go in, they all know my name. They have a great infrastructure. They've got a great booking system. I just hang my coat up. I'm not, I'm barely seen by the dentist. The dental hygienist does what a dentist is probably doing at many other practices, but the dentist comes in at the end and checks and says, okay, this is good. And it's a very easy experience for me. It's lower cost than, or at least equal cost is, is an independent dental firm. And so everyone's pointing, including myself, which is why I can't make a categorical judgment on how positive or negative this is for the field, because people are pointing to these examples here and those examples there. How do we judge this? What measures can we use categorically across the board? Well, first of all, I picked out cases because I couldn't go through all of them. It's not like I picked out the worst cases. I just picked out two out of a hundred kind of thing. Second of all, Yes, I agree with you. One of the reasons I studied nursing homes for many, many years, and one of the reasons I didn't put nursing homes in my book is because nursing homes tend to have very poor care. Every government study will tell you that. And to differentiate between private equity and normal profit-making companies is really difficult. But I think when you look at some of these niches like dentistry and fertility, well, not fertility. I mean, ones that have been there a long time and talk to experts in the field, they will say that this is not good for the healthcare system because it has to affect negatively quality of care. Now, I suspect that you have pretty good teeth. I invested a lot in those over the years, braces twice, surgery yeah. on my upper maxillary. But you haven't experienced what happens if you have some real serious issue. Is that going to be done by a nurse practitioner or is it going to be done by a surgeon? I mean, and I don't want to comment on one place. All I know is that if you truly understand the private equity playbook, it took me a long time to figure it out. If you truly understand it, it is impossible to have high quality care and take out all that money to pay off debt, all that money to pay private equity. Well, there's nothing left for quality care. And as I said, the few fertility uh, doctors and people that I talk to pretty scanned what has gone on in the few places that they have seen. So you're making a case of why it has to be, why it, it has to affect quality of care negatively because of the debt, what's required to service the debt because of what's required to return the investment to the limited partners, especially if they went bankrupt on something else, then the burden of 
returning a multiple and outsized profit is even more necessary for the limited partners. So you're making a case of why this is part of inherent in the model. Why have they failed at, at delivering on, on the economies of scale that they should, that they're promising in your view? And so if they're telling the doctors, look, you can just focus on medicine, let us take care of the EMR and the payroll and marketing construction and everything else, why are they failing on delivering a benefit to economies of scale that as opposed to them just having to take out, they're improving efficiencies? Why have private equity firms failed to be able to deliver on the promise of improving economies of scale? They, they can definitely do economies of scale, but the problem is that affects the quality of care. You know, this is like if you have, for example, one of the fertility doctors that I talked to say that private equity owned places look to get more and more patients and they do it on an assembly line. So they don't give the same kind of care to each patient. They just sort of go through them fast. That's efficient, but that's not necessarily quality care. So efficiency in, efficiency in retail may hurt. So the number of workers, you may go into a store and somebody doesn't jump at you to help you find what you're looking for. It's annoying. But in healthcare, efficiency can mean less care, faster care, and certainly less quality. Well, what if it means a, a center that has been on paper charts? And yes, there are still a couple that are on paper charts, even in the year 2022. And for whatever reason, they didn't switch. They didn't want to go through the cost. They didn't want to take team members off. And a network comes in and says, well, we have a, a cheaper per provider license or whatever per unit license this is for the EMR. So we can introduce that, that economy of scale. We can bring in our team to train your team. So that won't be an additional expense. Oh, you, you, you can't treat enough patients because you don't have any embryologists. We have a team of per diem embryologists and we can send them to your clinic on the weeks where we're not batching at other or whatever it might be. Why does it, why does it always have to lead to uh, a poor quality of care instead of in those examples, and those are the arguments they make, it seems to me like it would improve quality of care. Well, first of all, what I have seen in many of the niches is that they use less quality materials. Many of the people I talked to said that they got rid of the regular suppliers and they get uh, cheaper suppliers, but that has come with uh, cheaper materials. They stint on the use of materials, according to what I have heard. They don't train their people as much as they should. They often get rid of physicians to put in less trained physician extenders. Um, if, if you look at dialysis, for example, not only is it egregious conditions in the PEM dialysis, but the studies show that uh, more people die than anywhere in the world in, in our dialysis centers. They try to keep their patients rather than put them on a transplant list. Studies have shown there's all kinds of things that they can do to affect the quality of care. Now, they're not looking to have negative quality of care. They're just looking to squeeze operations so they could have as much money coming out and they can hand themselves a dividend. So I, I think in certain places where you can get real efficient, it's not good for healthcare. 
what about what does this mean for the younger doctors in in the field that they haven't built equity into their own practices yet they're now buying in or want to possibly buy in what have you seen from other fields of the path that this creates for younger doctors a lot of physicians are worried about this they think that private equity is changing the whole nature of opportunities Certainly younger doctors who have huge debts, greater than ever, can't afford to buy the practices of retiring doctors. So they end up working for places, whether it's private equity or healthcare systems. So I think the whole nature of being a physician has changed. And I think that, what do we have today? Over 50% of all physicians are now employees. And that's increasing. And they're going to be working under the, if they work under the conditions of uh, private equity, they will be basically told what they can and can't do to try to uh, squeeze operations. They can't say, for example, one of the fertility uh, doctors told me that what he likes to do is have flexibility. And he decided he would never go into private equity because he really needs this flexibility. One of the flexibilities that he likes is that if a woman needs another, a second round of fertility treatment for her, what is it? The in vitro fertilization, IVF, if she needs another round of that, he'll give a, re a really reduced amount and even more reduced if she needs a third amount. And he said, private equity would not allow that. So there's also a lot less. He argued there was so much less flexibility uh, to do what you think is right in your practice. I do hear many physicians say that, and many physicians do do that. They're just nice people. They have a relationship with a patient, and they want to help out in some way. I imagine private private equity backed partnership group might say, "Well, but that's well, that's ad hoc. It's dependent on the doctor's relationship with this individual." And they're doing that because they don't have uh, a financing program in, in place that's more equitable and scalable across the board. I could see that being something where they say, well, that's an example of one of the inefficiencies of private practice that we're able to scale across by having more providers and more resources. Is that a question? I guess it wasn't a question. It's just what they say. <laughs> I find myself on either side. I, Constantly, Laura, and I was recently on the other side of asking the younger physician question to an REI who I really respect. I, I've done business with, know the person who, and, and believe this person to be a very genuine person who feels that it actually benefits the younger physician more. And I can't really get my head around it. And because, well, one is what you're, when you're cashing out, you're cashing out on future earnings. And so, I would want to be more in control of my future earnings. I suppose that's the argument. And for those of you taking that side of the argument, you can tell me if I'm not doing it justice, but you're, you're saying if the, if the private equity firm, backed firm, the network is able to create something that is worth more, then, then I'm, I'm getting the chance to buy into something that's going to be work, worth a lot more. But the way I see it is, if, is when you're selling, you're cashing out on you're exchanging that sale price for future earnings. And I'd like to be able to affect that if, if I'm a younger doc. 
And two is the multiple is often dependent on what you've been able to build up. Like the multiple is coming from your sweat equity. And if you don't have a chance to build that up, so somebody can, can tell me where I'm wrong, but that that's where I go back and forth. Laura, as I'm looking for, I guess we don't have those case studies yet for, for younger versus older docs, but it seems to me that many of the older docs that it, it seems to me that many people are doing this for an exit that they, yes. they, yeah. they, they can't sell it to the new REI fellow because that REI fellow has $400,000 of debt and because the price has gone up and all right, well, now I'm able to sell this for six, 10, 12, whatever the, the there's trapped equity, at least it's trapped to the potential partner doc. They can't, they can't buy in at, at that price. And so private equity comes in. So how much, what did you come across with this being an exit strategy for older doctors? Well, I I think one of the things we're talking about was the uh, quality of care for patients and clients and the conditions for working conditions for physicians. When it comes to finances, doctors make money on this. What they do is they get a piece of the equity, they get lower salary. Usually they lower this lower salary, but they get a piece of the equity. When it's sold, they get a piece of the sell price. And when they buy, they stay with the firm and they sell it to a new private equity, they can get yet another piece of the sell price. So for young doctors, it could be financially lucrative, but the price they're paying is losing their freedom to be a doctor and do the do the procedures the way they want, use the equipment that they want, get updated equipment, so have trained personnel, have long relationships with clients. I mean, they pay a price for that, but I never said it wasn't lucrative. They could make good money. As far as the older physicians, they will tell me this is the only exit strategy I have. Because as you said, the young doctors can't afford to buy my practice. Now they could also sell in some niches to uh, hospital health systems. I'm not, I'm not sure my guess would be, and this is purely educated guess, that they make more money in private equity, but they have more control with the health systems. So I guess what physicians have to do is make decisions about whether they want long-term gain from selling at the price of losing their freedom to be a physician the way they want. Well, how, how would hospitals be any different? The IC hospitals is as having every bit of uh, little as free freedom as a, well, there's two questions that I have with hospitals is one is I see them as having every bit of little as freedom as not being in private practice because you're not the boss. You have, you've got a, a division chief and then a dean of a department, and then there's folks above that that are tied and they have procurement and purchase orders. And so a lot of decisions are, are made ahead of time. So I see one hospitals having even less freedom or perhaps the same as, as a potential. And two, we're starting to see hospitals sell off the IVF centers of their REI divisions to private equity back networks as well. So wouldn't you just be back in square one? Yeah, in that case, you would be. Something I, I grappled with, I talked to people about, I thought a lot about. One, I, I lament 
the demise of the independent physician. I think it's a really negative thing for this country that we have lost. We're losing that at a steady rate. But at least in a hospital system, it is headed by a medical personnel. In private equity, it's headed by financiers. And I find it more troubling that has healthcare, like the whole corporate uh, control of medicine, which is basically not allowed. But here you have financiers, the people that I talked to in fertility, for example, they were two friends, one that met in uh, the Wharton School. One went into private equity and the other decided to buy a fertility com company and they got together and put together a fertility company. There was no medical personnel involved in that. And I find that with hospital systems, at least, and I could be wrong, and the doctors that I've talked to that belong to uh, hospital systems don't seem as unhappy as the ones that are mm, controlled by private equity. But at least they have medical experience. They care about the health care. Even with all the bureaucracy, all the problems, and I, I, I can't say it's a great thing that the hospital system, excuse me, are buying up dogs, but at least they're in medicine. <laughs> they care about health care. I also worry about just consolidation in general, limiting competition, limiting. I think that's it. That's one thing that's really good about a, a free society and free markets in a society is that you have on one end, democracy bends towards chaos. We give everybody a voice and everybody ends up voting in their self-interest and everything is diluted. And on the other end, authority bends toward tyranny. And the point of having a system where different people can compete is that, okay, they're all tiny little authorities and the ones with the better ideas and better systems are able to grow and advance. But if they do that to the point where they're just consolidating and introducing financial systems that aren't necessarily aligned with the rewards for productivity in that system, then they've been too far the other way. So I'm going to let you conclude how you want, Laura, if you want to conclude the way, the same way you concluded the the book, or if there's something else that you feel you didn't get a chance to, to cover in this conversation that you, it, you feel is really important. How do you want to conclude about this topic of private equity, consolidating and purchasing more of the provider groups in healthcare? Well, I, I'd go a little further. I work with a lot of groups that are interested in this issue. They're very excited about the new chair of the SEC where he's trying to put more accountability to the private equity firms. The Warren's Stop Wall Street Looting Act, I think, is an important piece of legislation that also tries to give workers accountability for workers, that tries to get more transparency. Clearly, the secrecy has to stop because not even the limited partners, which are public pension funds, know what's going on. But I go even further, and this is not in my book. This is something that I came to a year and a half later after spending more and more time on looking at the healthcare niches and what's going on. I think that the private equity should be prohibited. From healthcare. I don't think it's uh, a place given their playbook and what they need to do. These are our billionaires. These are people who have really sucked out from our healthcare system. One of the big problems that we have in healthcare 
uh, overall is it's 21% of our GDP. I teach healthcare in class. And the last time I looked, it was 19% about a year or two ago when I decided to update. And I was shocked. It's now 21%. So private equity is increasing the cost of healthcare by the monopolies that you were talking about. I would eliminate all the advantages that they have, the financial advantages, such as the carried interest uh, loophole, their ability to take off for the taxes, the interest on this debt and things like that. I would strongly limit any debt that they can have, at least on health care. I don't think they should be allowed to well, have 67%, 70% of debt on a fertility clinic. Oh, and I would also, one of the things they're hungering after is... Uh, 401k money, billions and billions of dollars in worker savings, which looks like they may have access to more and more. I would prohibit that. And I would also get to one of the things you were talking about. I would prohibit stealth branding. That when I go into a dentist, I should know it's a private equity owned dental practice. So those are the kind of things that I think are really necessary, at least in the healthcare area, because... You, you seem like you're not sure. And I tell you, there's so many people that I deal with that are not sure. But the more and more I study what has gone on and what continues to go on, I've concluded that private equity is just detrimental to healthcare. Her name is Dr. Laura Katz Olson. She's the author of Ethically Challenged, Private Equity Storms, U.S. Healthcare. We will link to the book in the show notes. Dr. Olson, Laura, thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.